Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church Podcast. Here you'll find archived all of our previous messages dating back to late 2020. Our hope is that today's message would be encouraging to your walk with Christ. We also want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get to it. Isaiah had a vision of Jesus Christ seated on his throne, the train of his robe filling the temple. We know it was the Lord because the Apostle John tells us that when Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 6, it was none other than the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who did not begin in Bethlehem, who did not begin in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but who has been forever because he is God, a very God. He is the one who was and is and is to come. Tonight we're going to talk about the one who was and is not and is to come. But when he comes back, he's not going to be here for very long. Because when Jesus comes back, he's going to end the story of the Antichrist. Now, I want you to go back with me. We're going to be from Genesis to Revelation tonight, and we're going to be in Isaiah and Micah. We're going to be all over the place tonight because I want to show you some of the puzzle pieces of prophecy. We began last week uh, to dive into some of these prophecies concerning the prince to come from Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 through 27. The prince who is to come, who has, according to Revelation, already been here and we see in revelation chapter 17 again the story of this beast who not only ascended from the sea but from the depths of the very pit of hades itself look at verse 7 and the angel said unto me wherefore didst thou marvel i will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her which hath seven heads and ten horns The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition or destruction. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder or marvel whose names were not written in the book of life. Those who are not saved, those who have not trusted in Jesus by this point, especially at the midpoint of the tribulation when God will send the strong delusion to those who have not yet responded to the message of repentance, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they beheld the beast that was and is not and yet is. Verse 9, and here is the mind which hath wisdom. Guys, this is not beyond you because it is revealed to you in God's Scripture, but you need God's wisdom to understand it. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, we saw that, we saw that is the, the emperor Domitian, who was in power at the time John wrote these words. He was the one who exiled John to Patmos. He was the first of the emperors to demand to be worshipped as the god of gods, the king of kings. And is, um, 
one is and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb. When the armies of the world are gathered on the day of Armageddon, they're not just there to attack Israel and Jesus shows up and they're shocked. They are there because they know where Jesus is coming back to earth. They're there to attack him. They're there because the Antichrist will be so deluded by his own narcissism and his own power, the devil will have deceived him into thinking that he can stand against his own creator. And he will have the entire armies of the world gathered there in Armageddon Valley waiting for the second coming. And when Jesus comes, it will not be much of a battle because he will speak and the sword that comes from his mouth, Revelation 19, will slay the beast that was and is not and will come back just for a short time. These shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of Lords, not the Antichrist. He will call himself Lord of Lords. He will call himself King of Kings. But Jesus is the true Lord of Lords, the true King of Kings. And they that are with him are called, that's us, chosen and faithful. So we have talked about this beast that comes and, and we have spent some time looking at some possible names. Who could this be who was and is not? And we looked for some clues in prophecy last week and I gave you my suspicion, my what my dad would call holy hunch, that this is none other than Nimrod. Now, I'm going to try from Scripture to build that case a little stronger tonight, but I have to say that we can't be dogmatic where God's Word is not dogmatic. Nevertheless, we look at these Scriptures, we look at this, these prophecies, and even if you don't draw the same conclusions, there is power in the Word of God, and so there is going to be a blessing from these Scriptures, regardless of whether or not you uh, believe that they point in the same direction that I believe. But I want to give you tonight some scriptural and historical hints that none other than Nimrod himself may be the quote-unquote returning Antichrist. And I'm going to give you uh, four tonight in the time that we have, four uh, cases, four arguments, four scriptural and historical hints pointing to Nimrod. Again, we cannot be dogmatic, but let's look at what the Word of God has to say. So go with me now back to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, as we look again at one of the most famous prophecies in the church today, but we're going to keep reading. If you spend any amount of time, and by time I mean years in the church, you have at some point heard Micah chapter 5 verse 2, but thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. 
Jesus Christ is the eternal God, born in Bethlehem. God told Israel how he would be born. God told Israel where he would be born. And as we saw in Daniel chapter 9, God told Israel the very day on which he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, presenting himself to be the Messiah. But notice what happens next. Verse 3, Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. So in 1948, God's promise to reinstate Isaiah 66, to reinstate the nation of Israel in a single day was fulfilled. And Isaiah says that after the birth come the birth pangs. After the birth come the birth pangs. And what we are living in today is those very birth pangs. Wars and rumors of wars. Famines and pestilence. Earthquakes in various places. All that Jesus said has in fact come true. So this will come true as well. Verse 4, And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. In other words, he is God, but he is also one with God. Here we have a picture of the Trinity in, in this prophecy as well. Jesus is God, but he is also pointing people to God. He's pointing people to not just himself, but his Father. And this man, verse 5, shall be peace. When shall he be peace? When Asir comes into our land. Now, the English translates it as the Assyrian. And I want to say that is a correct translation. That is a possible translation. But it's a proper name that is here in the Hebrew. Asir. When Asir comes into the land, it can mean Asir. It can mean the Assyrian. And when he, but notice it's he specifically. It's not just they. It's not the Assyrian as a people. When he shall tread, well, he shall come into our land. When he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian. Thus shall he deliver us in the Hebrew from Assyr. When he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. So the first hint, the first clue that this could very well be Nimrod himself, whose name or title could also be Asir, because as we'll see in a moment, he is the he is the, one of the only people in the Bible who could be identified as the Assyrian or Asir, that both Nimrod and Asir are tied by name. Whether or not they are the same person is what we could debate tonight. Both of them are tied, and I believe they are one and the same, two names of the same man coming to the second coming of the Messiah. Now, the second one is where we already were in Revelation 17. I'm not going to ask you to turn back there, but the second clue is Revelation 17. The mystery of the beast, the beast that was and is not, is himself also of the eighth. We are told that one of the first five Antichrist archetypes will rise 
from the bottomless pit. Revelation 9.11 gives us the name of the king of the bottomless pit. Revelation 9.11 spells it out for us in both Greek and Hebrew. Revelation 9.11 says that the king of the abyss is called, quote, in the Hebrew tongue, Abaddon, or Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue, Apollyon. Now, if you do a word search uh, in some of your English translations, including, including the King James, you won't see this because the King James uh, translates out of the uh, Hebrew, translates the name Abaddon as destruction. But there are many times in the Old Testament, well, I say many, there probably, I think it's like four or five times. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of the exact number, but it, there are a number of times when it is actually used as a proper name, as someone's name, Abaddon. And because the translators weren't quite sure how to translate, they just translated what the name means. They translated it as destruction. But I, I'm suggesting to you they should have just transliterated it. They should have just left it as a name. Abaddon. Abaddon is talked about by Job, by the way. You, know, you have to be careful when you quote the book of Job, right? <laughs> because you have Job, who's a spirit-filled prophet of God. You, you also have the, uh, the preacher, Elihu, who is sent by God. You have God Himself speaking at the end of the book. Those are all reliable. You can quote directly from them. But then you also have the three friends. Be careful when you quote from them. You can quote from the book of Job and you can accidentally be quoting some of the false sayings, the false teachings. They're in there because they are false. They're in there because God wants you to hear their arguments and then God condemns their arguments. Okay, so you have to be careful. But these passages are specifically mentioned by Job. Job specifically talks about this person, this being named Abaddon in Job 26, verse 6, and Job 28, verse 22. Solomon talks about him in Proverbs 15, verse 11. So who is Abaddon? Well, we're told by Revelation that Abaddon is Apollo. Apollyon in the text, but Apollyon is just one of the variations of the many names for the Greek and Roman god known as Apollo. So who is Apollo, the hunter? Who is Apollo? He's the king of the dead. Now, he is not the same as Hades. I'm not going to uh, this is not a lesson on Greek mythology, okay? I'm, I'm, we're not going to dive and peel back into Greek mythology. Because what the devil has done is he has taken truth and he has mixed it up and he's, and he's added all kinds of lies and all kinds of fiction and all kinds of story on it. So you can get all tied up if you think that mythology is history, but it is based on history. It is based on history. It, some of you may have had a class on Greek mythology. But for those of you who, are, who aren't aware, if you go into Greek mythology, you'll find that Zeus and Hera are the first, so, so to speak, man and woman. Now, they're gods, right? But they are the first man and woman. And where do we find them? We find them in a garden. And what do we see in the garden? We see a tree, and it has fruit on it. And what happens to the tree with fruit? Oh, there is a serpent on that tree. But in Greek mythology, the serpent is not the villain. 
The serpent is the light bringer. The serpent helps Zeus and Hera by granting them this access to this fruit, which gives them great knowledge and power. So you can see in the mythology the twisting of history. You can see the perversion of history in mythology. The same with Apollo, the hunter, sometimes portrayed as the hunter with the bow and arrow, sometimes portrayed as the one who is ruling down over the pit, the bottomless pit, which is exactly where John tells us he will ascend from. By the way, maybe this is a good time to remind you what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, speaking of communion, and we'll be observing communion again, uh, Lord willing, on Good Friday. We'll have a, a special communion service on Good Friday. But in speaking about communion, Paul, in that general text, in that general context, he's about to talk about the the details of communion. And Paul says, I don't want you to be a partaker of the table of God and the table of demons. Because Paul says, don't you realize that when the Greeks worship their false gods, they are really worshiping demon spirits. Well, where was Paul at? Who is Paul speaking to? Who was being worshipped in Corinth? Who was being worshipped in that world? The Greek and Roman gods. Zeus. Athena. Apollo. Paul is saying these are not fictional characters. They are fictional stories. They're fictional histories. Mythology is a fictional coding on a demonic reality and a distortion of reality, a distortion of truth. And so there is a very real demonic power. And so I want you to think of that list. We, we looked at Micah 5, 6, and uh, Stacey, if you could back up the slide just for a second. We think of Micah 5, 6. Of all of the names on those lists that I, I presented as possibilities, and, and again, I'm stepping away from the, the text because uh, these are possibilities based on Scripture. But of the five who have fallen, and I give you seven possibilities, of those names, which is the most likely to be identified as the Assyrian, and who is the only one who is named in that specific prophecy? It is Nimrod himself. Now, Stacy, if you could go ahead a couple slides. When we think about Apollo and this God who was worshipped by the Greeks and the Romans, who is the most likely of the five who have fallen to be Apollyon? To be Apollyon, to be Apollos. Who is the one that is most likely to, for those legends to be based upon but the hunter? The mighty hunter before the Lord. Really, the Hebrew can be translated against the Lord. Because Nimrod means rebel. It means it, it's a title, not a name. Uh, I, sometimes it, people, I guess, today do name their kids rebel. Uh, I, I, it's usually more commonly for a dog name, right? You, you have a dog name. Some of you may have a dog or had a dog named rebel or had a friend who had a dog named rebel. Generally speaking, though, we don't name our, our kids rebel, right? We're not, at, we're, not, we're not putting that on ourselves when we name our child. So Nimrod is not a name, it's a title. But if you look at that list, I would suggest to you that some of them are completely disqualified because they came after the worship of Apollyon. So Titus certainly cannot be Apollyon. Nebuchadnezzar, I, I don't think you could make an argument. Herod, certainly not. Antiochus, certainly not. Nero, no. Even Pharaoh, I think that's a stretch. 
I don't think you could, in fact, I think you could look at the worship of the gods of Egypt and you could say that Osiris is another name for Apollo. He is their god of the dead. He, is the, he, has, he fulfills the same role in Egyptian mythology that Apollo fulfills in Greek and Roman mythology. So in all likelihood, they are, they are worshiping the same being when they worship Osiris and Apollo. So I would suggest to you that both the prophecy of Micah 5, 5 and 6 and the riddle of the beast from Revelation 17, which is, again, pointing us back to Revelation 9, 11, where the, where the king of the abyss is named for us. His name is given to us. Apollyon. Abaddon, who shows up in your Hebrew Bible several times, including quite possibly the very oldest book in the Hebrew Bible. People debate on uh, whether Job was written before Genesis or after. Uh, I believe what many of the rabbis, and, and you can take my opinion what, for what it's worth, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I agree with many of the rabbis that Moses wrote the book of Job that he recorded that history. And uh, we say that because there is some terminology that is very similar in the book of Job to the book of Genesis. And so they see there, it, it's, there's a strong indication that they may have the same author, uh, the prophet Moses. And so it's a strong indication if you go back to the one of, certainly one of the oldest books in the Bible who talks about Abaddon, that it can't be anybody who shows up later in history. There's only one character, really, who fulfills the role in the Bible from history who could even be the source of those legends and mythologies. And that's none other than Nimrod. But let me, in case some of you are still wondering uh, if there's any more uh, of a case to be made, let's think again about Revelation 17. Now, I don't want you to turn back there. I want you actually to turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. But let's think of the mystery of Babylon the Great. The great whore herself who sits upon the beast. The mystery, John tells us, of Babylon the Great. Well, in Revelation 17 and in Revelation 18, if we were to read both of I'm not going to read both of those chapters in their entirety tonight. I would encourage you at some point. By the way, God promises you a blessing just for reading the book of Revelation. So I would encourage you to, to make that a part of your Bible reading. You get blessed by even reading it. But we learn that Babylon is a city and a system. It is not one or the other. It is based on seven mountains, we're told. But it is, right, the, the beast is, is seven mountains. The beast is also seven kings. And so the beast has a dual, uh, dual role. The, uh, there, there's a, a duality there of the, of the beast and the woman that they mean different things. They can symbolize different things. But Babylonian paganism is really... Not just ancient evil, but we could say it's the source of all ancient evil. We could say that, that from the post-flood world, it is where it all began. And it is very significant that the system of Babylonian paganism is riding upon this mystery beast. So look at Genesis chapter 10 with me. And I want to show you some interesting things here about this man who we know today as Nimrod. Let me pick it up here in verse 
7. Well, let's pick it up in verse 6. So you understand that Noah got off the ark with his wife and his three sons and his three daughter-in-laws. Okay? And let's just talk about the sons of Ham for a second. Verse 6. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizram and Phut and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba and Hevilah and Sabta and Ramah and Sabteka. And notice there's a name missing there. But look down at verse 8. And Cush begot Nimrod. Now, why isn't Nimrod listed in the list of sons, but he is in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, he's called a son? Something strange is going on here. In fact, let me read to you from 1 Chronicles chapter 1. The sons of Cush, Seba and Hevilah and Sabta and Ramah and Sabteka and the sons of Ramah. And then verse 10, and Cush begot Nimrod. The same thing. He is listed as a descendant, but not necessarily a son. And so there are some Bible scholars who say that Nimrod may have been raised as a son, but he was maybe not the actual son. In fact, the Hebrew term for son can mean son or grandson. And I would suggest to you that based on the strangeness of these genealogies, it happens twice where Nimrod is left out of the names of the sons, but is then called a son of Cush, that he is very likely the grandson of Cush. Now, what does Nimrod do? Well, verse 8 says, He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, this is hundreds of years later when Moses writes this history down. And people are still talking about Nimrod. People are still worshiping Nimrod. And yet then the Bible goes silent on Nimrod. We would seem, or at least doesn't use that term for him, doesn't use that title for him until 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and then not again until Micah chapter 5. And yet here we're told by Moses himself that this man was so significant that people, that people in the world of, of that day were still talking about him as a as a mighty hunter against the Lord. And notice this, verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asur, Asir, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Kelah. I believe Moses is telling us in this text that Nimrod is a title for Asir. And that Asir not only founded the Assyrian people, but also Babel and Babylon itself. Now, we have to be careful here because, again, the Bible in Genesis chapter 11, which we're not going to take the time to look at tonight because we have a few other passages that we have to hit tonight. But it's very significant that these names are here again tied together as they are in Micah chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, tied to Babel, tied to Assyria. And so while the Bible does not specifically tell us that Nimrod is the one who built the tower, some, some scholars, by the way, believe it was Cush, his father or grandfather. But 
regardless, he is tied to the founding of Babylon. He's, he's tied to Babel in some way. Now turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. We have this incredible privilege of having the entire completed canon. But at, as, a, as much as that is a privilege, it also can be overwhelming sometimes because this book is pretty big. And so it can be hard to sometimes put all the puzzle pieces together. Like when you're trying to find your kids' puzzle pieces for the box, right? And you're missing a couple pieces, and you're like, where did they put the puzzle piece? And you're, trying, you're hunting through the toy boxes, you're hunting through the drawers, under the cushions, under the couch, you're trying to find the, the other missing pieces. Well, sometimes we have to keep in mind that the pieces of the prophecies aren't all in the same place in the Scripture, and they're revealed to us throughout time. But we're going to look again at one of the most famous prophecies in all the Bible, but before we look at this specifically, the Lucifer prophecy, which is where it picks up in verse 12, that's where most people start. But chapter 14 doesn't start in verse 12. Let's look at verse 1. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. Fulfilled, 1948. And the stranger shall be joined with them. Fulfilled. The land is full of strangers full of Gentiles, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob, and the people shall take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the Lord for servants and handmaids, and they shall take them captives whose captives they were not yet fulfilled, and they shall rule over their oppressors not yet fulfilled. And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear. And from the hard bondage wherein thou wast made to serve. Are they there yet? No, they're not. This, has not been, this part has not been fulfilled yet. Listen to this. In that day, thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How hath the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke. He that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindereth. The whole earth is at rest. We are not there yet, friends. But we will be. But we will be. And is quiet. They break forth. You know what we're going to be doing? There's going to be a day the earth is so quiet with peace because the Antichrist is done. You know what we're going to do? We're going to break forth into singing. Amen. Yea, the fir trees rejoice at thee, and the cedars of Lebanon sing, Since thou art laid down, no feller has come up against us. Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the Rapha in Hebrew. Who are the Rapha? The spirits of the giants. For thee, even all the chief ones of the earth, it hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations, and they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave and the noise of thy voles and the worm is spread under thee and the worms cover thee. Now let's stop there for a moment. Everybody in, everybody in hell is going to know who this guy is. The king of Babylon. The Antichrist. And when Jesus comes and he slays him with the sword of his mouth, he's going right back down to the place he used to rule. 
And the spirits down there, the spirits of the giants, are going to say, you couldn't beat him either? He got you too? Even you, the greatest among us? So let's think about this for a moment. The future Antichrist is called the king of Babylon. We know from Revelation 17 and 18, he is the one the woman is riding upon. The great whore of Babylon is riding upon his back. And he is called the king. Now, there's only one man in all of history, as far as we know scripturally. Certainly, there's only one man in all of biblical history who can be called both the Assyrian and the king of Babylon. Only one. The man named as Nimrod. By the way, I want to show you a little picture here. Solomon said there is nothing new under the sun. What you see on the top there is a famous painting, uh, an artist depiction of the Tower of Babel. What you see beneath is European Parliament in France. They're not hiding it, folks. They're really not hiding it. Do you know when the United Nations was formed that their publishing agency was called the Lucifer Trust? And Christians back in the day, maybe some of your parents, grandparents, were outraged. Well, this is, this is uh, Antichrist stuff. This is end of the world stuff. So they changed the name to Lucius. Same thing. Just changed the spelling to keep those Christians quiet. Shh. We don't want them telling everybody what we're up to. They know who they're serving, guys. They know who they are serving. Now, not everybody, not all of them do. But the elite of the elite, they know who their God is. They know his name. They're doing exactly what Nimrod or his father, certainly he was tied in in some way. Josephus says this. Now, let me step away from the Bible here because this is, we're going to step into history for a moment. This is from the first century Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus wrote this. Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe to God as it was through his means they were happy, but to believe that was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny. This was written... In the first century, folks, he gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to god and they built a tower neither sparing any pains nor being in any degree negligent about the work and by reason of the multitude of hands employed it and it grew very high sooner than anyone could expect but the thickness of it was so great and it was so strongly built that thereby its great height seemed upon the view to be less than it really was it was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar, made of bitumen, that it might not be liable to admit water. When God saw that they acted so madly, he did not resolve to destroy them utterly since they were not growing wiser, 
by the destruction of the former sinners, but he caused a tumult among them by producing in them diverse languages and causing that through the multitude of those languages they should not be able to understand one another. The place wherein they built the tower is now called Babylon because of the confusion of that language which they readily understood before. For the Hebrews mean by the word Babel, confusion. Now, we'll stop there. That's from the Antiquities of the Jews, page 79 and 80, from volume 2 of the works of Josephus. The point is that if we're just sticking with Scripture, we see the fingers all pointing to Nimrod. Now let me give you one more with the time that we have left tonight. And it has to do again with Genesis chapter 10, but it has to do with the Septuagint translation. What is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the very first translation of the Bible into another language. We know for a fact that at very least, at the very least, the first five books were translated into Greek. That would include, by the way, Genesis. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born. We know that the New Testament quotes heavily from the Greek translation in certain places. In fact, there are places where the Hebrew Bible differs than the Greek Septuagint and the Bible quotes from the Greek Septuagint. The Greek Septuagint was translated under the authority of the high priest. And remember, this was at a time before Jesus came and ended the Old Covenant. So the Old Covenant is still in, in effect. The high priest is still God's representative on earth. And the high priest gave authority to the 70 translators to translate, at the very least, the first five books of the Bible into Greek. Here's what the Septuagint says about Nimrod. The Septuagint says Nimrod began to be a giant. Now, I talked to you for a moment about the oddities of Nimrod's genealogy. Is it possible that he was, was Cush's, raised as Cush's son, but actually Cush's grandson through one of Cush's daughters? Because he, he was begot by Cush. So we know that, that he had Cush's genes in him, but he's left out of the, in both passages, he's left out of the list of actual sons, which would imply to us that he was a grandson through one of, very likely through one of his daughters. Why is that significant? Did he really become a giant? Genesis 6 tells us that there were Nephilim before the flood and also afterward when the sons of God saw the daughters of Adam and they took them as wives. When we come to the book of Numbers and the, and the 12 spies are sent into the land, they come back with an, 10 of them with an evil report. And their evil report is the land is flowing with milk and honey. You've never seen so much. The, the land is so prosperous, by the way, that they had to carry, it took two guys to carry a stalk of grapes. The land was not as it is today. The earth was much more productive than it is today. Creation was, was very different. We're thousands of years into the curse and it's affected how productive the earth is. But what did they say? We can't conquer that land. It's full of giants. It's full of giants. 
We saw in Amos a few months ago now that God himself says that King Og was as tall as a cedar and as strong as a tree. And God does not tell big fish story, guys. He doesn't. He doesn't need to, he doesn't need to exaggerate like we do. God doesn't exaggerate. When God says the, that, the, that King Og was the size of a tree, he was being serious. He was being descriptive. He wasn't exaggerating. So is it possible that Nimrod was like Og, a, a post-flood Nephilim, or what the Old Testament calls one of the Raphaim? The, Raph, the word Rapha is used of the giants in the, first in the historical books of the Old Testament, it's used uh, in the prophetic or the um, uh, poetic books. It's, it's translated as dead, but it's the same term. And I suggest to you it's the same spirits. It's the spirits of the giants. Do you, do you understand that Genesis 3.15 says that Satan will have a seed? The very first prophecy in the Bible says, I will put enmity, Satan, between you and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Now, if her seed is literal, and it is, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, then why do we think the seed of the serpent isn't literal? Why do we think that's just symbolic? By the way, what happened to the angels who sinned in Genesis chapter 6? According, we saw this last week, according to 1 Peter, according to 2 Peter, according to Jude. What happened to them? They were sent somewhere. They were sent to Tartarus. They're bound in chains until the day of judgment when they'll be released. They were sent to the pit, the bottomless pit, the lowest point of Hades. There's a king over them. Now, what would make somebody a king over them? I would suggest that whoever was born of Satan would be a king over them. Or whoever was a son of Satan by some type of genetic manipulation. By the way, can you back up a slide, Stacy? I, I forgot to point this picture out later. I don't know how well you can see that. That's a, an ancient depiction of Nimrod. Do you see what he's holding in his arm? It's not a dog. That's a lion. The ancient people depicted Nimrod as a giant. Cuddling a lion in his grip. Do you realize in Revelation chapter 20 that when Satan is captured, that he's going to be imprisoned? Do you want to guess where he's going to be imprisoned? The same place that God sent the angels who sinned with women. In the bottomless pit. What's the bottomless pit for? Well, according to Peter and Jude, it's for angels who sin with women. So how does Satan end up there? Unless the prophecy is literal. You say, well, that's a little hard for me to believe. Well, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's hard to believe. Doesn't mean it ain't true. Doesn't mean it ain't true. Satan is captured, sent to the pit. He's bound for a thousand years, just as the other uh, angels and let me ask you just a couple questions. We're, we're not going to take time for a, an invitation tonight. I, I want to get through the, this, um, this message tonight. But I, I would just tell you again, as I always do, if you have a need, I'll be here after the service uh, to, to meet with you, pray with you, anything that you need. Our deacons will be here as well for a few minutes afterwards.
How will the body of the beast be resurrected? Do you remember what we saw last week? I'm going to cover some of this a little bit quickly because it's review. Jesus in Matthew 24 said that they're going to tell you that the Christ has been found in the desert, but don't go. They're going to tell you that the Christ has been found in the secret chambers, but don't believe them. Because when I show up, everybody's going to know it. I'm not going to be hiding out in the desert. I'm not going to be hiding in a secret chamber. I'm going to light up the sky when I come back. But there is going to be the news. We found the Messiah, his body. We found it in the secret chamber. And wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Do you realize that of all the names on that list, with the possible exception of Pharaoh, Nimrod's the only one who was most likely lived during the age of mummification. I want you to think about that. You've been to a museum and seen one of the mummies on display back when they toured the United States, or I'm sure you've seen them on, in movies and online. So isn't it interesting that this man who very likely lived during the age of mummification, uh, his body is going to be discovered. But let me ask you just this question. Will he rise like Count Dracula? Sit up? Or will he be replicated? Because see, now science fiction is becoming science fact faster than some of you realize. In fact, some of this is not news. President Obama, I think it was his, it was his first or second term, not, not his uh, current term. <coughs> uh, <laughs> Back when, he was, back when he was officially president, pre I've, I watched the video. You can find it online on YouTube, I'm sure. He stood up and he said, the United States will never clone human beings. We will never allow the cloning of human beings. Why did he have to say that? Because he knows it's, it's scientifically possible. And if he had to say it, the United States is probably already doing it. Probably some, some of what's going on in those labs in Ukraine. Who knows? Who knows? I don't know. But it is scientifically possible to clone a body. I watched uh, an interview with a Harvard, I think it was a Harvard professor. I didn't watch the whole thing. It was too dry for me. I couldn't, I couldn't get it. But he was talking about the DNA samples from, from ancient remains and how much of it has been corrupted by bacteria and by time, but how much we can learn from the DNA of ancient beings. Well, my word, can you imagine how much DNA you can get out of a mummy? So is it, I'm just suggesting, this, uh, this is not scripture, this is not, I'm just suggesting the possibility that this, in fact, I, I think it could be all ten of the kings are cloned and their spirits are brought back to tie with the body that they had before, not in the same corrupted state, but in the new science of new resurrection. I mean, they're promising us eternal life, right? From science fiction to science future. You remember Daniel 2.43, right? They, the ten kings, shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. But it's not going to work. It's not going to cleave. Well, to mingle yourself with, you have to be something other than. These ten kings are not going to be completely human. Why is the Antichrist called a beast? 
I suggest to you it's not just because of what he does. I suggest it's because of what he is. They will mingle themselves with the seed of men. That, you know how that's possible? Uh, next slide. And again, I'm, just, I'm wrapping up here. I appreciate you staying a few minutes extra tonight so I could finish this up. Recombinant DNA, which is definitely not science fiction anymore. It's happening now. You can inject DNA into your body and it replicates in your cells and it just writes itself right into your cell. So when your cells replicate, now they replicate the new information too. Revelation 14, there is an incredible warning that anyone who takes the mark of the beast will be damned forever. No more, no more hope of eternal life. No more hope of forgiveness. Now how is that possible? Because didn't Jesus die for everyone? That's what 1 John 2, 2 says. Jesus paid for the blood of everyone. But he only died for men, guys. So is it possible that through recombinant DNA during the days of the beast, that through DNA manipulation, that people are going to be damned because they won't be fully human anymore? You say, that's crazy. Oh, no, that's science fact now. That's what they want to do. That's what they're trying to do right now. That's what the scientists are working on. Whatever you think about the vaccine, that's what it's intended to lead to. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm not saying that's what it is. Okay, just like your visa is not the mark of the beast either. Okay, but that's what it's all leading to: digital currency, digital DNA that they can control. They can turn you off and turn you on, like they want to turn your car off and turn your car on. It's coming. The Bible lays it all out for us. Some of this we know, some of this we suspect. Daniel 11.37, I'll end, I'll end with this. I'll wrap this up. Poor Kim over there with the kids for Kids Choir. <laughs> Daniel 11.37 says that the Antichrist will not regard the desire of women. The traditional interpretation of that is, oh, that must mean he's gay. He doesn't desire women. That's not necessarily what it says. Now, now, that is a possible interpretation, but it's not the most likely. It's not the most obvious. It is possible. But he is literally said to not regard their desire, not his desire. So what is it that most women desire? Well, they don't desire us the way that we desire them most of the time. We're not wired the same. We're just not. Go to the next slide. Neither shall he regard the desire of women. Is the desire of women in this culture not to have children? I'm speaking of historically. Even today, although natural birth is less popular than it was, it's still the desire of most, most women want to have a baby. Most do. Not all. Most do. Is this the desire that he's talking about? Is there going to be something about his birth? Is there going to be something about what he does to try to say, hey, we don't need to have natural birth anymore. We can be created in a tube. We can create you. Just something to think about. I strongly believe 
again, can't be dogmatic, but I strongly believe if we look at all of these historical scriptural hints, they point in one and one direction only. Whatever you think, I pray that you would meditate on these scriptures. But remember, what I said as I began, I'll say as I close. He who was and is not and who's coming again is going to be defeated. And he'll be defeated by he who was and is and ever shall be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your mercy and grace. We thank you for the victory that we already have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the miracle of prophecy, the wonder of prophecy, God. And, and as we wrestle with some of these prophecies and some of these mysteries, God, we know that you have it all figured out. We know that it's all in your control, and we know that our hope is in you. And so, God, may we carry that hope with us this week. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. If you have a need, I'll be here after the service. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful. Thank you.